I'm excited to get tonight's conversation started. So let's bring Wayne up onto the stage. Wayne is currently the SVP of Canada for a firm. Wayne, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you tonight? I'm great, thanks. Sorry, I'm just going to turn you up a little bit here. I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. Are you are you in your basement? Because it looks very good light. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, this is a bedroom. This is a guest room. Okay, cool. Um, let's start off. Can you give us a 30-second elevator pitch on yourself and what you do? Sure. So I'm the head of Canada for a firm, which is a buy now, pay later company. And before that, for five years, I was the CEO of Paybright, which was Canada's leading buy now, pay later company before we got acquired uh, on the 1st of January of this year. It's been a busy year for you. Can we take you back in time to 2015? Uh, you joined Paybright. Back then, it was called Health Smart Financial Services and focused on the health space. So if I'm correct, at that time, you were working in private equity and previously worked in consulting. So why make the transition to an operating role? Yeah, no, you've done your you've done your homework. I'm impressed. So yeah, you know, I, I started my career in consulting, like the typical management consulting thing at Bain and Company. Then I thought, oh, I, I want to you know get closer to the action. I don't want to be an advisor my whole life, so I'll, I'll go into private equity. And then I realized private equity is also just kind of watching other people build stuff. And so I always thought, well, if a cool opportunity crops up where I could get in the game and and lead something or you know get my hands dirty building something, I would do it. So I had that opportunity uh, in uh, 2015 when I got connected with this company, Health Smart Financial Services, which almost no one, no one listing will have heard of. Uh, but it was a really small um, point of sale lender focused on the healthcare space. And just a quick recap of what point of sale lending is: that's when the merchant or whoever's selling the good or service is offering installment payments right there at the point of sale. That's point of sale lending. And so Health Smart Financial Services was this tiny little company. Um, they had five or six employees. They were actually part of a larger healthcare chain. And I'm going to condense a lot of stuff into a few seconds to say I got on board. I partnered with the, the shareholders and we spun it out and set it up, set it up as its own company and uh, started to try and grow it more like a startup, like a growth stage company, uh, which it hadn't really been before. So I didn't realize it was part of another company. So how do you find this opportunity? And how do you know this is the right opportunity? Like, it sounds like it was a relatively small company you know, coming from Torstar where big private equity firm in Canada, you had all these probably opportunities. What make, what appealed to you about this, this one in particular? Yeah. So when I was at uh, Tor, Torquest, it's, it's okay. often gets confused with Torstar yeah. request. Um, it, I had spent a few years of my time there focused on like specialty finance, non-bank lending, some things that you would consider FinTech. Uh, and I, I always thought, some of those business models are really cool. And I always thought one of the best ones was point of sale lending because your, your customer acquisition cost is effectively paid for by the merchant. All your distribution is through the merchant. So if you partner with some retailers, they then offer your product at the point of sale and help you acquire consumers on a B2B to C basis. So I always thought, boy, that's a cool business model. And I tried to invest in some of them uh, when I was at TorQuest. And I, in 2014, I first met HealthSmart and, you know, I was meeting all these companies across the country and trying to see if they were, you know, candidates for investment and HealthSmart was at a too small, wrong stage, but I got to know the shareholders really well. And so I sort of stayed in touch with them. And a year later, one thing led to another. And next thing I knew I was, you know, partners with them and running the business. So, so that's amazing because TorQuest to a startup is a big transition. 
And it seems like you quickly made your, you know, made an impact in the company because less than a year later, you expanded beyond health services um, into retail, changing name to Paybright. Uh, was that your plan from the start? Why expand beyond health services? Why retail? Yeah. So, so we, so when I first got involved, I thought, okay, well, here we have like a, you know, a solid working platform, paying customers, uh, a, a theoretically large end market. There is, are, is actually billions of dollars spent in private healthcare in Canada in a year. So the hypothesis was this company had never really tried to grow quickly. Like there was very little sales and marketing effort. Maybe if we just lean into that, we can see how far we can take it in the business that we're already in. Like, let's go after the core business. And so all through 2016, that's what we did. Uh, and we, we doubled the business the first year, but it was doubling off a small base. I mean, we weren't like, you know, on the front page of the, you know, ROB or anything. Not yet. Um, but by the end of 2016, we said, you know, it's going okay, but this is never going to be a, a really big thing because it's, it's a fragmented market. So after you've got like the biggest fertility chain or the biggest laser eye chain and the biggest dental chain, it gets very fragmented and it's a real battle to grow quickly. So we said, look, we need to get into retail where you have much larger end markets and huge retailers. And then we qu quickly realized that no one had done e-commerce installments uh, in Canada. And that was something that was working very well in other markets. And we thought we had the right platform to do that. So at the very end of 2016, we rebranded as Paybright and started building our e-commerce installments product, which we uh, launched in the summer of 2017 through the Shopify platform with Endy, the mattress company yeah. that, that most people have heard of. So that's how we kind of made that first step from idea A to idea B, which is what really kind of was our inflection point. So I want to take apart a bit of what I've heard here. So first of all, I have to ask, I think you were in the HB Hudson Bay Company board since like 2012. So how much did that play and provide insights into what could, what would be possible into the retail space? Um, I, it definitely helped. I think it definitely geared me to understanding a bit more of like what was going on in, in retail. Um, it, but it, it definitely expanded my network. So that when I, when I, I was sort of, you know, initially I and one of my, my partners, Vassal, were sort of doing the sales, I could get in to meet with people in the retail world. I probably had no business meeting because of like that other connection. Yeah. Because they were like, oh, you know, we're meeting with Paybright. Who the hell is Paybright? Oh, we're meeting with this guy who's on the Hudson's Bay board. So that helped, you know, get us past that initial hump. And then after that, we kind of developed our own, you know, reputation and track record. But initially those first few big enterprise clients, you know, they're really hard to get as, as everyone knows. Yeah. You know, yeah. The first clients are always the hardest. And it sounds like the decision was not only go to retail, but go to e-commerce. So I believe before that you were talking about POS point of sale. So it's probably all offline. How do you make the pre preparation to go basically digital? Yeah, that's a great question. So most, um, before this sort of buy now, pay later revolution that we're now in, and before e-commerce financing, um, it was all in-store, obviously. And it was typically assisted by the retailer, right? So you had a store staff walking you through it. Maybe you've done this at you know some store before. And so the question is, how do you take everything you're doing, but the customer's going to have no help? They have to go through it all by themselves. And you, and you have to make it as slick, fast, and beautiful a process as you can to fit in with a modern retail site. Um, but you still have to control your risk because we are still lending money, right? You still have to, you know, collect all the customer data and go through the KYC steps and the, and the credit and fraud decisioning. 
So we just took all the building blocks we had and kind of reinvented them so they could become an e-commerce plugin, basically. Interesting. And part of the transition, you took the model you had for health services and took the same basically product line. And part of that, what I read about that, it's, it's simple. You had a couple payment, um, I think six month and 12 month installments and what I call like an, sort of an anti-credit card model. So how, you know, how do you underwrite these? Like what, what, you know, especially I think the merchants imagine played a bit of the role offline. So not only you have to con you know, convince a consumer to now buy online, but you have to actually underwrite them. So what's the process? How did you, how do you think about that? What, what did you have to learn there to do e-commerce? Yeah, good question. So um, for lar uh, without getting to too much of the weeds, yeah. for larger ticket uh, purchases, we do an instant credit check. For small ticket purchases, we would do no credit check and we would let each customer try at least once. And mm -hmm. if that customer uh, paid us back, then they could keep using it. If they didn't, then they wouldn't be able to use the product for a period of time. But what we really had to learn in e-commerce was how to deal with fraud. So in-store, it's much less of an issue than it is online. In-store, you know, it's a fairly confident fraudster that comes in and tries to take a bunch of TVs or whatever and walk out. But in e-commerce, as we speak, we have people sitting in basements with stolen credentials trying to buy lots of stuff using PayBright. Uh, and so learning to fight fraud, um, you know, in real time and efficiently was something we had to learn on the fly. A um, lot of people in, you know, payments know this and have to go up the learning curve, but it can be quite expensive to go up that learning curve if you, you know, if you're not careful. So we had to learn that for sure. And was that the biggest shock? Like, what was the biggest surprise about this transition? Um, the, the biggest, I mean, fraud was was one of the challenges. Yeah. Um, I think the mm -hmm. biggest shock in a way, though, was like how well it worked, right? It's like when you when you put it in the checkout of a big retailer, and especially if you can get integrated placement onto a PDP, like a product display page yeah. and have the customer see the installment payment option right there next to the full price, instantly you can get, you know, five, 10, 20, 30% of the sales of that site. And that takes off on e-commerce far better than it does in-store where the staff have to be trained. They have to offer it. You know, they have all of those things and you have high staff turnover. So when the staff leave, you got to train the next person. None of that applies in e-commerce. It's just there as a payment method, and it can really take off with the right sort of retailers and marketing around it. I guess it's consistently offered. You don't, you don't if the, the the computer doesn't have a bad day, the internet doesn't have a bad day. Every time it's up there and for offer. So talk a bit about that Shopify expansion, the platform. How do you do, get a deal with them? Because it sounds like that's very key to making e-commerce work. Yeah. So we we ended up having about eight e-commerce integrations and you know, four or five in-store like POS integrations. And it's a whole mix. Like some of them are open source. You just, you can just go for it, build your plugin. Other ones you have to, you know, beg permission to be allowed to integrate. Some of them have to integrate you, you know, you have to get on their roadmap. So it's a whole mix. I'd say we were, we were fortunate to be early enough in this in Canada that the platforms that we required their permission, they looked and said, Oh yeah, this is missing from our, offering in Canada. And so, yeah, let's, let's do it. I, I think it's actually a little harder now in some cases to, to get on those roadmaps from what I can tell, but that is a key part of the distribution. Like there's a certain part of a certain number of retailers that have fully custom e-commerce sites. And so they'll do a direct integration uh, with us, but everyone else has third-party platforms. So it's critical that you have the, the plugins to make it easy for them. Yeah. And so that, that that's interesting. Um, you have to get plugins, you get the Canada Canadian market. It seemed like 
sounds like it was surprising how well it was going. Why not expand beyond Canada? So I will tell you, this is probably a mistake that we made. So in the early days, um, we were doing larger ticket financing, right? So, you know, couches and TVs and whatnot, a couple thousand dollar purchases. That's a very domestic business. And there's not a lot of cross-border players doing that for reasons of regulation. And it's difficult to line up the capital and whatnot. And so we thought, okay, we're in a domestic business. It's a pretty large market. Let's go with this for a while and see how it goes. And we'll do international expansion one day, but we don't need to. And if anything, the border is protecting us as a Canadian business. What evolved after that was what we call low AOV, uh, like smaller purchases uh, with the the pay in four model, right? The four biweekly interest free payments. We got into that and we quickly realized that is a global business. So you now have like Afterpay and Klarna and Sezzle in multiple countries with a single brand that retailers feature on their site. And then we were like, oh, okay, we really need to go to the US. And we were a little bit behind the eight ball at that point. So we were preparing for a US entry right around the time that the whole acquisition, you know, discussion heated up. Okay. So tell, tell us a bit what happened. So like at this point, you have a quickly growing company. I imagine you had a strong team behind you because it seemed like your team was growing and don't see any big news of like uh, executive turnover. So that's usually a good sign. Um, were you out looking for money? What, what did you need and why, did, why, how did this acquisition happen? Sure. So you know, I'd say we were starting to establish, but we were establishing ourselves as the Canadian kind of buy now, pay later market leader for, of the non-credit card players. Uh, and we'd had, you know, people kind of approach us before about acquisition. We never really focused on it yet. We thought we had a long way to go. Um, then COVID hit. And for about three weeks, we thought we were in horrible trouble. So we thought no one was going to repay their loans to us. And we thought retail sales were going to go off a cliff and everything was going to be a disaster. And, and we worked with lenders who fund our receivables. So we thought they were going to run for the hills. So for about three weeks, you know, I wasn't sleeping. And then it turned out, um, actually, we were in a great business for buy now, pay later. And people kept paying the bills and there was government support. E-commerce took off, as everybody knows, and we were massively leveraged e-commerce. So our business was doing better than ever by sort of May, I would say, of May of 2020. And then when it, within a few weeks, we got approached by multiple players of wanting to acquire us. So some of the big fintech players in our space uh, from other countries who wanted to come to Canada all of a sudden, and some of the Canadian banks, interestingly enough, who wanted to get into buy now, pay later. So in this very short time, we had all this inbound. So we were sitting there saying, wow, like this, is, this space is evolving very quickly. There's so much capital going into it. It's an international business. Right now, we're sort of in demand as like the Canadian leader. Maybe we should listen to what these people are saying. So, you know, I spent a bunch of time with our board on that. And we ultimately said, okay, let's see where this goes. And of course, once you start that process, it has a way of, you know, taking out a life of its own. Well, for someone that hasn't gone through such a large acquisition before, what were you concerned? Like, were you trying to maximize the value? Were you worried, you know, were you worried about your employees? Like, Imagine it sounds like you had a bit of a let's call it better for a better word an you know an auction here. But how do you imagine you have five six offers? Everyone's promised you the world. How do you side and how do you you know sort of like what's your what's what's your approach? Yeah, uh, yeah, good question. I mean, so so value is clearly part of it, and uh, you know I didn't own one hundred percent of the business, so it wasn't only up to me. Yeah. And and as you know, like the farther people are away from the business, the more they are focused on 
what the, just the value, right? Um, I was very focused on our team sort of landing in an, in an exciting environment that they would want to keep staying in and growing in. Uh, and I was very focused on um, making sure that our customers and partners were going to be treated correctly, that it was going to be, if anything, a good thing for our merchants and consumers. So those were the, the main things. And of course, you're praying the whole time that the best for the, the merchants and, and the team turns out to be the best on value, because otherwise you can end up sort of holding your nose and you know taking the, the best value offer. And I think we were lucky that kind of the best all around bid that came out of it was was a firm that we were really excited about. Well, that, that that's great to hear. And, and while you were going through this auction, who at the company knew, I imagine that some of the investors knew, but how do you keep this quiet or was it possible? Like I could imagine it could be a huge distraction. Yeah, that, that's always a tough one. I mean, the, the, the last thing you want at the early stage is everybody sort of talking about um, what may or may not be happening. I mean, a lot of the time these discussions never go anywhere. And so, and so just having people speculating about it is kind of, a great way to distract yourself. So it was really only initially sort of four of us on the management team plus the board. And then once we started getting into due diligence, we had to bring in sort of the next kind of dozen or so members of management to, you know, speak to whoever was doing due diligence on their particular area of the business. But we did manage to, you know, until we got pretty far down the track, otherwise keep it quiet and let everyone in the company just focus on building and not, not M and a. And then the day you announced it, I imagine you announced it internally. What did you do to prepare your team? Did you know, and, and get them comfortable that hey, this is going to happen? And I, I don't think a firm hadn't filed to go public, but it hadn't gone public yet. So you make this announcement: hey, we're getting acquired by a firm. They're about to go public. How do you prepare your team to stay focused, continue to execute, and for a post-acquisition life? Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a great question. I mean. I think for some people, it was such a surprise that, well, someone actually told me, they're like, well, we heard you say the first sentence of the announcement and whatever you said in the next half hour, I don't remember, you know? So, it, but, but I think what happens in these situations is people hear the news, they're excited, they're proud of what they've accomplished. But then after that, it's like, well, wait a second, what does it mean for me? And so that's where we had to really, you know, lean in and I think communicate to the team about like, what does this mean for your career path? What does this mean for the things that you built? What does it mean for your customers? And so, you know, we spent a lot of time on that in the weeks afterwards. Um, and I think quickly got everyone to a place where it's like, okay, this is the next chapter. This is exciting. And let's, let's see where it goes. And I'm, I'm proud to say that our, our sort of retention of our team is very, very high uh, in the past nine months. And everybody's kind of excited to keep building, even though it's a bigger story than it used to be. And how's the post- acquisition life for you? Like what's changed? How do you, you know, do you sleep better at night? Do you sleep worse at night? Like what's, you know, not, not many founders in this ecosystem have gone through large acquisitions like this. So it's nine months later, what's different? So I think that the main thing for me personally is, um, so that one of the, the, I know really rationale for a firm buying us is the businesses were so similar. Like every function that we have, they have. And so we were able to move fairly quickly to integrating some of those functions, whether it's, you know, finance or capital markets or treasury or marketing, um, and really have the Paybright team members join up with their firm team members and make a really strong team. And so there's a, a number of areas of the business that I used to oversee that and things that would keep me up at night, like fundraising, 
that I don't have to, to worry about anymore. And a firm has however much money on its balance sheet. So that's not an issue anymore for us. So I can now spend my time more on um, the commercial side, right? So what's best for the, the customer, um, still spend a lot of time with our, our product team um, and just still trying to grow the business as quickly as possible in Canada, but without having to, to lose sleep over kind of all the support and everything that goes into that. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm having fun. It's like a, I guess a narrower scope, but on a bigger platform and kind of less, and I get more sleep. <laughs> so that's good. And what advice, like if you're looking back, what advice would you have given yourself six years ago when you, when you joined, um, you were taking the first steps to leave TorQuest and join basically a startup, you know, what, what would you, what lessons have you learned? Yeah, there's a lot. Um, and what I didn't know, uh, could fill a couple of books. I would say probably the biggest thing is at most stages, I, I, and we, as a team, I think we were too cautious. Like we were too nervous about, you know, what, what mistake might, might we be making too nervous about running out of money? Um, all of those things that sort of make you question what you're doing. Obviously it's easy to say that now because it all worked out, but like there are multiple stages where we should have just gone for it, pushed harder, trusted that we would figure it out. And I think we would have got quite a bit farther in the five or six years than we did. So that would probably be my biggest piece of advice and probably advice to a lot of entrepreneurs as well. It's like, go for it, take the risk, go fast, you know, and, and there's a lot of power in that. I love that. Um, and you know, sometimes Canadians, we get, we get called timid or not aggressive enough and, you know, be a bit more American. So I love to hear someone that's successful say we could, we should be more aggressive. And that's something that the ecosystem should basically pursue. Like if you, I guess if you're going for it, you might as well go big. Totally. Totally. And I think in hindsight, things that we were nervous about getting wrong, I mean, Jeff Bezos says this all the time. Most mistakes are reversible. There's only a few things you'll ever do where you're betting the company it's irreversible. Most of what you're doing every day are reversible. And, you know, there's only so much trouble you can get in most of the time. And so just, just go for it. Try things, do things. That's, I, I was far too cautious when I started this. I love that. So if you start another one, we know you'll be much more aggressive. Um, <laughs> uh, want to switch topics now. I want to like, this has been amazing and insightful. I'd like to do a lightning round where we ask, I'm going to ask you like six, seven questions in like in a minute and a half and just get your first response. It doesn't, don't have to go deep into okay. them. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So what's your most exciting thing going on in FinTech right now? Oh, geez. Uh, other than buy now, pay later. Other than that. <laughs> um, I still think uh, what's going on in some of the neobanks is super cool. I know they've had their ups and downs. Um, some of them may flame out, but I think there's a, a lot that can happen there in the next few years. Is DeFi a threat to fintechs? Um, it's as, as much an opportunity as a threat. Cool. Um, favorite activity to do with your family? Oh, um, cycling. Oh, how far do you cycle? Uh, so my kids are pretty small, so not that far, but we're going to work our way up. Cool. Uh, favorite city to visit? Oh, um, let's say Rome. Excellent. If you weren't in fintech, what would you? What, what part of technology would you look at? Um, transportation. Cool. Um, interesting. Uh, commuting or just transportation in general? Uh, probably more like cars. Cool. <laughs> uh, you know, is the future distributed or in person for teams? Uh, a mix. So hybrid. 
Cool. Uh, what startup would you like to see created? Oh, geez. Pass. <laughs> okay. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, Wayne at affirm.com. Cool. Wayne, we got through the questions with two seconds to spare. Nice. Thank you for so much for your insights and you know your basically transparency. Uh, I can't imagine many founders who had a big exit would come up and say, we weren't aggressive enough and that's been our biggest mistake. So appreciate the truth, appreciate the time. And I look forward to actually seeing you in person uh, sometime in the near future. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.